You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Here you go, Jane. Okay, today's Bible reading is from Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me, your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jane. In those notes, you'll see a picture of someone's desk, their office desk. It's the desk of someone very famous. It's the desk of Albert Einstein. When you look at it, you can almost imagine, you can see why it's his desk. We all know his crazy hair. Well, this desk looks like that too, doesn't it? There's papers everywhere. There's books stacked messily as if he doesn't have time to sort them all out neatly. There's mathematical equations scribbled on the blackboard very quickly. The photo feels really busy, doesn't it? Even though he's absent, he feels very present somehow, and the the whole thing is just humming with life, I reckon. But there's a problem. See, there's a reason that Einstein is not in this picture, and the reason is that he'd actually just died. Uh, This photo was taken, apparently, just hours after Einstein's death, On April the 18th, 1955, Albert Einstein, the world-famous physicist, the Nobel Nobel Prize winner, died of heart failure. He was 76 years old. And when you realise the context for this photo, you look at it again and it feels different. It actually makes it quite haunting. You see, when I look at this photo now, it feels like I'm looking at a life interrupted. There's a, there's a package at the front of the desk as if someone had just left, dropped off some mail earlier that day and he hadn't had time to open it. 
his seat's on an angle as if he's just kind of jumped out, of the, out to grab some lunch and he'll come back as soon as lunch is over. But of course he won't. His life isn't just interrupted here, it is over. And when you look at this photo, it feels like it was cut short somehow, that this wasn't quite finished the way he wanted it to. There's these equations on the board and we wonder what they're about. I mean, was he perhaps on the cusp of some great new discovery? Well, we'll never know. He never got to finish it. I think this photo really shows us the shattering reality of death. See, we live and we live and we live and we are utterly alive. We're thinking and feeling, we're doing, we're planning for the future, we're remembering the past, all of these things. We're totally alive until suddenly we're not. Suddenly we're gone. Suddenly it's over. Suddenly we are dead. And there's no negotiation with this. You know, if you go on a holiday and you think, oh, I just needed to finish off that last couple of hours of work, you can do that in the morning. Well, you can't do that with death. You can't come back. You can't finish it off. When it happens, it's done. There's no give. There's no room for manoeuvre. And this is what we all face, isn't it? They say there's two certainties in life, death and taxes, which means that every person here in this room is going to die. There is a chance that Jesus might return before that happens and so uh, that we might not die for those reasons, but either way, our life will be ended. This life will be ended. Every one of us will experience this. Your life, my life, all of our lives will end. And yet it's amazing how little we think about this. Like how often do you grasp and, and grapple with the reality that this life is finite? Perhaps it's because it's a little bit overwhelming to think about that. We don't know what to do with this. I mean, how do you live in light of this great big reality at the end of things? We, we get the sense that life is fragile and precious. We only get one shot at this, and so we want to do it as well as we can. We want to feel like we've lived well. But how do we do that? How do we live well? That's really what this series has been all about. Over the last couple of months, we've been looking at the Bible book of the book of Proverbs. It's a book that's all about wisdom, and you can basically define wisdom as knowing how to live well. Kenneth Aiken says to know wisdom is to have the skills needed to make a success of your life. It's the skillful mastery of life. That's what wisdom is. And over the last couple of months, we've looked at various different ways that we can do that. We've thought about how we can develop life-giving friendships or how we can love our family, do marriage well, how we can use our words to bring life rather than death to other people, how to steward your wealth in a way that provides for others, how to uh, honour God with our work and even how to think through justice and how all of God's creatures deserve it and they're dependent on us seeking that and pursuing that. So there's all of these various elements that we've thought about with wisdom. But also Proverbs wants us to think about the bigger picture over the whole thing. It breaks down into all these little bits but also wants us to think about life as a whole. The words life and live come up 56 times in Proverbs and the words death and die come up 20 times. And so these two things are there everywhere through Proverbs and they're kind of interacting. They're distinct and yet they sort of bleed into each other. As the writer Ray Ortland Jr. says, it's, it's, it's almost like there is a way to live that's actually like dying and then there's a way to live in which even after you die, you continue to live. Maybe that sounds a little bit philosophical. So what I love about Proverbs, though, is it, it makes it very tangible for us. 
with the idea of two paths. See, often we talk about life as a journey, that we're, we're travelling somewhere, we're travelling towards our destination, we're, we're going along the paths of life. That's how Proverbs talks about it too. There is this two paths that we get to choose, that we're constantly walking towards something. It's a path of life or a path of death. It's a path of wisdom or a path of folly. 12.28 says, In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there's no death. Chapter 14, verse 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So he's saying that there's these two options for you, a way of wisdom or folly, a way of life or a way of death. And we must choose which one we will go down. No better is that choice illustrated than in our passage from Proverbs 9. Uh, The passage presents two women Uh, Two very different women. Some commentators call them uh, lady wisdom and woman folly. And they're both calling out to those who are walking past and urging them to come in. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Uh, That word simple here basically means unformed. This is someone who's starting out in life. Perhaps they're a little bit naive, but they've got their whole life ahead of them. They get to shape their life and what direction they're going to take it. and what path they're going to go down. And these two women are calling out and saying, follow me, take this path. But what they offer is very different, contrasts. Lady Wisdom offers good things. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. She's offering a path of wisdom. Lady Folly, however, offers something very different. It's She offers stolen water and secret bread, something illicit, something that's uh, exciting perhaps, but forbidden. And the two results are very different. Wisdom leads to life. Verse 11, by me your days will be multiplied, but folly leads to death. Verse 18, her guests are in the depths of Sheol. That's the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. So we are left with this choice between us that that we all face. Who will we choose? Will we choose wisdom or folly, life or death? That's really been the question right through Proverbs. And tonight, as we conclude our series, I kind of want to bring it, some of it together and think about the big themes that have kind of emerged throughout this series and the kind of the distinctives between the wise person and the foolish person. There's three things I want to talk about. The first thing is that a wise person will live for more than themselves. See, the fool is described in lots of ways in the book of Proverbs, but there's two characters that kind of highlight what the fool is like, the sluggard and the adulterer. We thought about the sluggard a few weeks ago. It Basically, it's a slacker, someone who is very, very lazy, and it's a figure of scorn in Proverbs. He's always sleeping. The only exercise he gets is when he turns over in bed. In fact, he's so lazy that he can't even manage to feed himself. Chapter 26, verse 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. He can't even be bothered. He puts his hand in the nuts and can't even be bothered bringing him to his mouth. Now, it's deliberately exaggerated. It's supposed to be ridiculous, but it's there to make a point for us. The sluggard is a fool, and ultimately he destroys himself and others because of that. Chapter 20, verse 33, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So if the sluggard is a figure of fun, then the adulterer is very definitely a figure of tragedy. Someone you're watching between your fingers 
Because in a sense, it's like watching someone who's about to have a car crash. Like you don't want to watch, but you kind of can't help but watching. In Proverbs 7, he's pictured as a man walking down the street when he encounters a seductress who's wily of heart, who's drawn in by her words, verse 21, with much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. She's promising life, excitement, passion, pleasure, but actually she brings death. Verse 22, the the adulterer is kind of trapped. All at once he follows her. As an, axe goes, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. He's trapped by his own desire, by his own sin. So we have these two very different characters, the sluggard and the adulterer, very different and yet strangely similar as well. See, they have the both, both have the same end, destruction, and even though their specific sins are different, I think there is something underlying them that is the same. It's the desire for self-gratification. They live for themselves. See, why does the adulterer fall into sin? Proverbs 5, 23 says he dies for lack of discipline. He, he can't say no to pleasure. And because of his great folly, it says he's led astray. So he's, he's not just naive, he's foolish. He's actually looking for sin. He's eager for it. He's open to it. This is the guy scrolling through Netflix late at night, looking to fill his eyes with something seductive. It's swiping through Instagram, hoping to be titillated. It's the married man uh, chatting to that nice woman at work and enjoying the way she's looking at him. The adulterer is looking for gratification and so he falls prey to his own desire. He's trapped. And it's the same root problem, the root root sin, I think, with the sluggard. He serves himself and his own comfort and anything that gets in the way of that, he avoids. So when he's faced with the reality of a challenge, he runs away. Whenever something gets difficult, he gives up. He sleeps because he just wants to avoid the complexity of life. So both of these characters are very different, but they're all about themselves. They're about self-gratification about just doing what feels right. And I think that's a great danger for us as well. See, our hearts and the culture around us are constantly saying that we should always be saying yes to ourselves. Whatever we want, we should have. We should say, go after that. And so we do go after that, whether it's money or possessions or achievements or acclaim or pleasure or experience. Whatever it is that we're wanting, we just go after that. We say yes to that. We seek our own self-gratification. Now, there can be good things that we're seeking after, but there is also a danger if we're constantly just looking to serve ourselves. It's actually a kind of self-worship. See, see what do you do when you worship a, a god? You, you serve it. You give it everything that it asks for. And we do that with ourselves sometimes. Whatever we want, we give it to ourselves. We serve ourselves. But the danger is that it just ends up destroying us. So that's what you see with the sluggard and the adulterer. The sluggard doesn't sow his seed now, and so he has nothing left, nothing there to to get when it's harvest time. He'll regret that. The adulterer chooses sin now because he's not thinking about all the consequences. He's not thinking about the mess that it will create. 
He's just thinking about now. He just wants to do what he wants. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So if we're just serving ourselves, we're not serving something big enough. We need to live for something bigger than ourselves, someone bigger than ourselves. And that's what the wise person does. They live for more than themselves. First of all, they, they're thinking about others. They use their wealth to provide for others. They are generous to the poor, Proverbs 14. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. He's thinking about what goes on after him, who, who comes after him, the generations to come. They use their words not to boast but to bless others. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, Proverbs 10 says. And they use their power to lift others up. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. That's what the wise person is doing. They're thinking about other people. They're living for something bigger than just themselves. And ultimately, they're living for God. They're living in light of who God is. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's, that's really been the key verse of our whole series, the fear of the Lord means that you recognise the greatness of God. It's not that you're just kind of cowering in terror from God. No, it's a recognition of the awesome reality of God, the greatness of who he is, and then a life that lives in response to that. Tim Chester says, to fear God is to respect, worship, trust, and submit to him. It's recognising that he's the boss and so everything of life, we live in, in line with his greatness, we live for him. And this reshapes everything. David Hubbard says it begins with worship, then radiates out into everyday conduct, means that each moment we see as the Lord's time, each relationship as the Lord's opportunity, each duty as the Lord's command, and each blessing is the Lord's gift. It's a new way of looking at life and seeing what it is meant to be when viewed from God's perspective. That's what it means to fear God. That's what it means to live with God and for God. It's doing everything in light of his greatness. And ultimately, it's trusting that he knows what's best for us. You see, we worship ourselves and we seek to gratify ourselves because we imagine that we are the only God who will do that. We have to do that because we think that no one else will do it and we believe that God won't do it himself. But actually God made us. He knows what's best for us. He created us. And so this is a call to trust him, that actually in following him and living for him, we will receive the kinds of joys that we are looking for. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. He'll guide you through life. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And so the wise person lives for more than themselves. And then secondly, they live in light of the end. As I said before, the fear of the Lord doesn't mean that we have a terror about God. And yet I also think it's right for us to have some sense of terror when we think of God's judgment, particularly when we think about the ultimate reality of hell. And we don't talk about hell a whole lot. Society scoffs at the very notion of it. 
It's just some made-up concept to make people afraid so that they can manipulate you. Uh, Even within the church, we kind of frown at people who talk about hell too much. We deride them as hellfire preachers or something like that. And when we're sharing our faith, we'll rarely talk about hell or punishment or judgment. We don't want to scare people off. But perhaps people need to scare. See, in the Bible, hell is a real place and it's a fearful place. Jesus spoke about it repeatedly. He's the original hellfire preacher, if you like. And the way he described hell is terrifying, frankly. It's a place, he says, of blazing fire, a fiery furnace. It's a place of darkness far from God and all of his softening goodness. He says several times that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth that those who miss out, who who miss out on heaven and end up in hell, will regret that just beyond comprehension. There will be the sense of, I shouldn't have been this way. I didn't have to end up here. I should have turned to God. And this is what we all face. You see, Jesus made it clear that hell is a place where sin is punished, where wrongdoers are judged for what they have done for rebelling against him. And that's actually all of us. See, the haunting message of Scripture is that God looks at us and needs to and sees sin and must respond to it. Proverbs 14, the wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Like there is hope if you're righteous, but the problem is the Bible says that none of us are righteous. Romans 3, none of us are righteous, not even one of us. And maybe we question that, but Proverbs doesn't just let us escape, doesn't let us squirm away. Proverbs 5.21, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his path. Like God is watching us and he's pondering how we're living. He's examining us. And so he sees everything. He sees every foolish decision, every defiant action, every cruel word, every act of disloyalty. He sees every lustful thought, every wasted dollar, every act of injustice. He sees it all. Proverbs 15, to paraphrase, he, our hearts lie open before the Lord and he will assess us, he will judge us. Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, when we think about this, there should be a sense of fear, right? This is a reality. And what are we going to plead in our defence? Like, is it, Are we going to plead our achievements or the nice things that we did, our little works of righteousness? No, no, it's not going to stack up. God demands perfection and we don't have that. But thankfully, Jesus does. That's the message of the Christian gospel. We are not perfect, but Jesus was. And Jesus was perfect for us. He lived on behalf of us. First of all, he did. He lived a perfect life for us. And that is now placed on our account. Right? When, when God looks at us, he doesn't see the things that we have failed to do. 
He sees what Jesus has done. So we look perfect to him. And then Jesus took our sin, the sin that must be judged, and he took the judgment for it. He took the punishment for it so that we don't have to. This is what Jesus has done. If you fear this, if you fear God's judgment, God says, take what Jesus has done and you won't face it. You'll be accepted. When God looks at you, he will see only the perfection of Jesus. We can have all of this if we turn to him. Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the condition, repentance and faith. To repent means to turn back to God. We're walking this way. We're walking the wrong way. We're walking the path of folly and death. And then we turn back. We turn back to God and we say sorry and we resolve to walk with him. And then belief is to trust God, to recognise that he is there, that he loves us, and to take what Jesus has done for us. It's to say, I need you and I trust that you are enough. I give you everything. I give you my sin. I give you my life. I trust that it's good in your hands. This is what God offers us. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's this hope, there's this promise, there's this need for us to be reconciled to God and God is offering it to us. He's handing it out to us. He's saying, grab it, take it, you can have it. This is the day of salvation, Paul says. And so if you haven't done that, this is the day of salvation. This is the day to receive the gift that God has for you, to open your hands, to open your heart to what Christ has done. And if we do that, then there is a future for us even beyond the grave. We had a parenting course a few weeks ago and uh, there was this really great video that we were watching and the guy was talking about how we have a sin problem and a death problem. Basically, because of sin, there is death in this world. It's the kind of poison that brings everyone to the grave, right? And that means that we have a death problem, but Jesus solves both of them. He takes our sin problem, he deals with it, and that means that he also gets rid of the death problem. See, Jesus died, but death could not hold him down. We sang it before, didn't we? Death couldn't hold him down because he was perfect. He didn't have sin on him, and so he rose from the grave. And his promise is that we can rise with him, that yes, even though we die physically, we can live with him forever in a new life. That's his promise to us. And the wise person will live in light of that. They'll, they'll live for more than themselves. They'll live in light of the end. And then, thirdly, they'll live in light of what is next, the life to come, the life after the grave, the life of heaven. Now, I actually think that we underrate heaven. Maybe that sounds weird. I mean, it's supposed to be pretty awesome. It's supposed to be paradise. I see the little brochures from the JWs and it's got lions sitting on the grass. It looks great. Right, But if it's so great, then why isn't it a bigger part of our lives? Why don't we think about it more? Why don't we talk about it more? See, whenever there's something that we're looking forward to, we live in light of that, don't we? I've got a holiday coming up in a couple of weeks. I keep thinking about it. I keep planning out what I'm going to do. I can't wait for it. And you're probably the same in lots of different things. If you're a teenager, you can't wait to grow up and be an adult. 
if you're engaged, perhaps you can't wait to be married. You're thinking about that future you that's going to be there. If you've been working for a few decades, you can't wait until you retire. We live in light of the future all the time. We live in light of what is next often, and that fills our hearts. So why don't we feel the same about heaven? Like, would you say that you are living in a keen anticipation of heaven, that it's the, something that you're thinking about every day? Are there times where you're with your friends and you're like, oh, mate, this is going to be so fantastic when we do this in heaven? Why don't we think like that more often? If heaven's so good, why aren't we living in light of it? Well, I think a big part of it is that we don't actually realise what heaven's going to be like. And the picture that we have instinctively in our head is actually pales when we look at uh, the world that we have now. See, the world that we have now is dynamic. It's physical, it's tactile, it's busy, we're working, we're doing stuff, we're making things happen. Yes, there are difficult things, but so much of life is exciting, right? And by comparison, the picture of heaven that we might have is probably pretty dull. So it's all a bit super spiro. We're just sort of standing around on clouds with harps in our hands and old school togas and Jesus sandals. Like, I hate sandals. And that's what heaven looks like, right? Or we're singing and singing and singing. Like there's a song, I don't know, you've probably noticed we sing it sometimes, I could sing of your love forever. Like imagine actually doing that, just standing there singing forever. Like surely that gets boring after 10,000 years. But I actually think that we're missing something. In fact, we're probably missing a lot. See, first of all, heaven is physical. That's the picture that we have in the Bible. We're not just off in the clouds. It's a new heaven and a new earth. In John 14, Jesus told his disciples that he was preparing a place for them. He spoke of heaven as a country and as a city. And it's a renewed place full of wonders and new life. Just think about stupid example, but think about rocks. Like every rock that you've seen is thousands of years old, really, and it's worn down by the ages. Imagine a brand new rock. <laughs> it's going to be a wonderful thing. It's going to be an extraordinary thing. The new earth. What kind of pets are there going to be in heaven? Like I really hope my cat ends up there. But what if all of the other new things that God might come up with? Some new creation. New creation. It would be fantastic. And we will have renewed bodies to go with it. We'll be raised in power. We'll be immortal, imperishable. We'll be glorious. As Donald McLeod says, the scenario is a thrilling one. Brilliant minds in powerful bodies in a transformed universe. That, that's the future for God's people. That's something to be excited about. And that's even something that can influence how we live now. So how does it? How do we live in light of what is next? I want to suggest three things. First of all, we live with hope. See, when life is difficult, God invites us to look to what is next. This world is cursed by sin, and so there is suffering, there is grief, there is sickness, there is hardship. But God's promise is that that will all be taken away. Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. All of those things that are difficult and horrible in your life, they will be taken away. So when life is hard, live in light of the future. Live in hope. 
When your bank account is empty, when your body is breaking down, when your marriage is fractured, when your friendships are shattered, when your heart is broken and your trust has been taken away, look to what is next and live in hope. Heaven is the land of no more, no more suffering, no more tears, no more frustration, no more disappointments. Live in light of that. And then secondly, live with perspective. Uh, See, the idea of heaven as boring is actually kind of dangerous because it tends to mean that uh, we, we feel like we have to cram in everything into the here and now, into this life, and that can actually become pretty overwhelming. Uh, there's a whole collection, a whole genre of books framed about around all of the things you have to do before you die. You know, there's a thousand and one books you've got to read before you die, a thousand and one movies you've got to watch or albums you've got to hear, TV shows you've got to watch, paintings you must look at, video games you have to play, all of these things. You're being told these are the things that you must do before you die and it's not possible. You're never going to get through even just one of those things, those a thousand and one things. And so it feels like your life is incomplete, that you haven't done all of the things that you would like to do, that you should have done, that that were there for you. And I feel like this problem is actually getting worse and worse. See, in the past, people's horizons were kind of narrower. Right? They, they grew up in one place and unless you were really rich, you wouldn't move around that much. But that was okay because you didn't know what was out beyond the hills. You didn't know what was over there. Or if you're looking for a partner in the Middle Ages, you, you sort of just looked around your village and you just hoped that A, they weren't related to you and B, they brushed their teeth once a month. Like that's kind of all you were looking for. That's the, the low bar that you had. But now in our culture, we're constantly being told that we can have everything even though we can't. And so the world is constantly holding out these things as if it's possible when it's not possible. And so we feel frustrated. We feel like we're not having the full experience that we could have, that our life is not uh, complete. But when we live in light of the future, in light of what's next, we can find peace. So there's lots of wonderful things in this world and we can enjoy them and be thankful for them. But there's going to be even more in the world to come. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful essay called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he argues that we are made for heaven. This world is just a temporary home. Like we, we are so aware of ourselves here and we can only really imagine this life, this place. But actually, we were made for heaven, for something bigger, for something better. Because of that, he says, our desires that are unfulfilled here are really just pointing to the fact that they will be fulfilled later. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So if there's something that you want, there is a way for it to be satisfied. So a baby feels hunger because there's food. A duckling wants to swim because there's water. And so for us, those things that we desire, there is a satisfaction for them. And if we don't find them here, it's because the satisfaction it's designed for later. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so these earthly pleasures weren't meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to, to suggest the real thing. Really what he's saying is the things that you don't feel have been fully fulfilled, 
will be fulfilled later. The joy that you're looking for, you will find with God in the life to come, in the life that is next. As one writer puts it, it will be an infinite world of new discoveries. That's what is ahead for us if you trust in Jesus. And the greatest discovery of all will be the true beauty of God himself. You see, I joked before about uh, not wanting to sing worship songs forever, but there is actually a serious point to this. There is something problematic about that. Uh, The thing is, I don't actually trust, do I, that God will be satisfying, that I I can't imagine being fulfilled just meditating on God. That's my picture of God is too small. John Piper writes, if, I, if you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever wanted, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical, physical pleasures you ever tasted, could you be satisfied with heaven? He says, if Christ was not there. It's a challenging question. It's a classic John Piper. He only does challenging But basically he's saying, like, we can enjoy all of these things, but ultimately we should be looking for God himself. And if we can imagine these things without God, then there's a problem. But the reason that we don't imagine that God is enough is that our hearts are shrunken, our hearts are small. Deep within us is this sense that God is not enough, that he's a killjoy, that he's holding out on us, that he's not fun, he's not exciting, He can't give life in all its fullness. That's deep within us. We truly uh, struggle to to get beyond that. And I think we'll be like this for as long as we live. But then we'll walk into heaven and we'll realise how false that was. 1 John 3 says, the Apostle John talks about how we are, heading towards this amazing future where we see God face to face. And you can sense that John is stretching out for that. He can't wait for that. He is living in light of what's next. You see, what's going to happen is that our hearts that are too small now will be enlarged. Our hearts that don't trust that God is enough will discover that he is more than enough, that in fact he is infinite Thomas Boston writes, the, the divine perfections are like an unbounded field in which the glorified will walk eternally, seeing more and more of God since they can never come to the end of the infinite. Imagine that. Every day you're walking through the fields of God's infinity, recognising more and more just how great he is. He goes on to say it's a little bit like if you you go to the ocean and you fill it up with a cup, you've got a cup full of water, but there's still an ocean out there. That's what heaven's like. It's swimming through the oceans of God's perfection. That's something to look forward to. Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist, likened death to being asked to leave a party before it's over. You know, you're in the middle of it, you're having fun, and then someone taps you on the shoulder and says, right, it's time for you to go, and you just got to go. And you miss out on everything that's going to happen. For the Christian, it's the reverse. This life can be a party, it can be wonderful, but the after party is going to be even better. And God is inviting us to stay for that. 
Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the path of life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this series and Proverbs and all the things you've invited us to learn and to consider. We thank you for the path of life. We ask that each one of us might choose it. Help us to be wise, to fear you, to recognise your greatness and to live in response to that and to draw close to you, to trust in you because you're a God who is mighty and powerful but also incredibly loving and close. Lord, help us to live in light of your goodness, to live for something bigger than ourselves, to live in light of the end and then ultimately to live in light of what's next. Thank you that you promise pleasures forevermore. Help us to truly believe that and to live with a kind of perspective, recognising that our desires will be fulfilled, that you truly are satisfying. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.